Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In there. I just picked this up, Joy Street. I just picked it up. It looks like it's from the 18th century. Uh, it that does, cover actually. looks really vintage. I think you're right. Maybe let's go for early 19th. But yeah, when you see uh, dividing lines in prices, you know that something's up. Yeah, I like <laughs> it. And apostrophes. Prices shouldn't have apostrophes in them. Good to meet you, Jamie. Good to see you, buddy. Cheers. Um, I spoke to a couple of people today about speaking to you. And their words were, have you met Jamie before? And Uh-oh. I was like, no. And they go, because he's a real character. Mm. Now, Who are these people? I'm going to find them. Your press agent, Matt, for one. What? And the other guy was our mutual friend, Christopher Dean, who said he was with you it's like no, just last week. No friend of mine. Gone. It's gone. He's <laughs> out of there. No, I bump into Christine all the time. I went to uh, a nice holiday day in Brighton, and he was there with his whole family walking down the street looking like a Timothy model. There you go. And yeah, now, he's a handsome guy, and he's got that surfer look listen, going Listen, I didn't say handsome, but now you mention <laughs> it, yeah, he is handsome, he is. yeah. He thinks I'm a character, eh? That's weird that these people that know me really well uh, think I'm a character. Is this the podcast, by the way? Have we started? This is it. We're in it. Right. So I was going to start by asking you, are yep. you comfortable with that definition, and what would your definition of a character be? Well, uh, it's interesting because some people do say, you know, do you think you're eccentric? And people would like to describe me as eccentric. And uh, I, I think the truth is that I'm not really very comfortable with it. But usually what people mean is on the outside. And I could see how you could see me as eccentric on the outside because of the way I look. So would your definition of a character be someone that is eccentric? Well, a character is someone who stands out, a personality, which is, uh, yeah, I'm comfy with that. The trouble, the trouble is that usually when people say, 
oh, so-and-so is a bit of a character or, or so-and-so is a bit eccentric, that it, it has a slight, a very slight negative connotation. It definitely wasn't meant negatively sure. for those two. No, sure. In I mean, these, instance, are, my, these do, are my good friends. I do but, hear what you say, yeah. But to tell you the truth, by the time that I know someone as well as I know Chris or Matt, I would sort of expect to become normal to them. So the they're fact desensitized that I, to it. Exactly. Yeah. They're so used to it, so bored of it. Uh, so the fact that they still think I'm a character, uh, I hope that's, that's positive. You know, I love those guys. I think in music, you need people that are, you know, unorthodox, that are yeah. out of the, um, the norm, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And I guess your career is marked by that desire. Would that is, be safe to say? Is it? In wanting to tread the path less followed. Well, I do. I want to tread the path less followed for my own benefit, for the benefit of the music and the art that I create. But I don't want to do it in order to stand out for the sake of standing out. I never have wanted to stand up for the sake of standing out. When I was a kid, back when my band was getting together and, and just before that, you know, I had the long, like green dyed hair and I had I used to wear makeup and nail varnish which the goth subculture is a huge thing, but in my school, I was the only fucking one. Dude, the goth subculture is probably the last subculture. It's the last great subculture. Yeah. It'll be see them and the cockroaches after the um, uh, after North Korean's uh, atomic attack. Is this? Can we do swearing on this you podcast? You can say whatever you want, mate, yeah. But even back then when I was dressing like that, I didn't do it because I wanted to stand out at all. That's just And standing out was a real problem because I'd get beaten for it, you know, for Where'd standing Where'd you grow out. up in London? No, 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 no. I grew up in the home counties in Leafy Guildford. Right, okay. Uh, not so much diversity there and someone... A boy so it's wearing. very easy to stand out sure, in an area like sure. that. But that's not why I did it. And even today, when I got the funny haircut and the suits and whatnot, I, I don't do it to stand out. And when people stare at me and whatever, I don't particularly enjoy it unless they follow it up with a nice conversation and say, hey, we're going to get the suits and whatnot. Uh, but... Uh, I just do it because I like it personally. I'd sort of prefer it if I didn't stand out. I'd prefer it if everyone dressed like me. I'd prefer it if everyone dressed like you too, there Jamie. You go. I like there your you... style and I say that with sincerity. Thanks very much. I like I a man who takes pride in his appearance and, you know, you've even got... Is that a pocket watch in that pocket as well? This is my great-grandfather's uh, chain. The, the watch is from the 80s, actually, of my uncle, but the chain is, yeah, is an antique. I was given a a very similar heirloom myself recently as well. But um, I guess you sort of need the full outfit to carry off the chain, don't you? And also, do you not worry when you're stepping out in public with something that's so old and precious, you're going to misplace it, you're going to get jacked? No, no, because it's or do people better fucking watch out if they step to you in that way? Well, you know, it can be used as a as a (laughs) weapon. You know, if you're in the club and somebody getting too close. But this is, you know, funnily enough, I mentioned being a goth earlier on when I was a kid, and now, and the the one thing that links both styles, as it were, is the chain. Because when you were a goth, you had the wallet, the wallet chain, of course, went from your waistband to your back pocket, and I've still got it. Look, here it is, from my top button down to my waistcoat pockets. That's funny. What are the trinkets on it? The trinket sort of customized it as well. You got a coin and then like a sort of a, this an is emblem. A, this is a mood stone, uh, I think. Or this is they just call this a fob, which is cut uh, with uh, filled with stones. And this is some kind of ancient coin. I think it's a war medal, um, but I don't really know to be honest. My uncle, he's the kind of guy he will have a conversation with him, and he will have a conversation at you, 
and it was it, so it's a monologue really it's sort of a monologue but then he is a college professor right and so you're getting good value you know yeah. i don't have to pay any tuition fees i just talk to my uncle but he he won't necessarily talk to you about the thing that you have asked about he will give you maybe the second half of a conversation that he started with someone you never met 20 years ago and so you just take whatever you can from it and you'd say uncle bruce what's this watch chain all about and you say well in the antipodes in the 30s of course and it goes from there and you get smarter but not nice. on your preferred subject I went to see a play called The Ferryman yesterday, mm. and there's a character in that, the granddad or the uncle, and he's very much like that. He'll s- sort of contextualize every, you know, basic story with some real historical yeah. background information. No, and that's just like go me. I can't, you can't ask me a simple question without getting... My wife asked me about the uh, haircut design of The Bride of Frankenstein this morning. She said, why do you think hair looks like and then i said well it has to be the electric shock right no 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 do you want to know why i do is this fact or your take no this is fact okay cool this is fact well i said to my wife this is what i said well when tutankhamun's dad akhenaten got rid of the established uh, uh multi-theistic religions of the ancient egyptian society and replaced them with uh, monotheism which is the worship of the sun disk ra uh, no the arten sorry he uh, changed all of uh, Egyptian society, he changed sculpture, he changed the art form. All those Egyptian statues look pretty similar. But then if you look at the, the stuff from the Armana period, which is the 18th dynasty, which is Akhenaten and his son Tutankhamun, it, the sculpture gets very more realistic. It's a lot easier to relatable to. And there's a fantastic sculpture that they found in the uh, chief sculptor's workshop. They found it in the rubble of this ancient unfinished, city, Armana. Or, unfinished. Right. It has a missing... Well, we don't know if it has a missing glass eye because he hadn't put it in or because it fell out. And they found his workshop full of these amazing busts. And one of them was a bust of Tutankhamun's stepmom, Nefertiti, who has... It's an incredible bust and it's so lifelike. But it's got this amazing, like, long headdress. And that was in 1912, which sort of was... There was an Egyptology fever, and then in the 20s, when they found Tutankhamun's tomb, everyone went crazy for Egyptology. And so you can see a link, and it has been said that uh, Jack Pierce, I think, who designed the makeup for those uh, Universal films, was greatly influenced by that bust of Nefertiti that had been discovered uh, maybe 15, 20 years before, but still that Egyptology fever was running wild. So that's why she has that long hair. But you know it. what? It could be just because she was electrocuted. I didn't realize that until you just uh, told me. But that's the thing. You can't Well, no, you're talking about thing. a stylistic influence right there, which yeah. I love. And um, that period of time was so creative, especially in horror. Obviously, it was the renaissance of horror. You had all the monsters. Oh, you, you had not Dracula. 18th Dynasty Egypt. I'm talking about okay. 20s Hollywood. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, just an amazing time for, for Hammer Horror. And, I mean, is that something that you sort of dig into and enjoy as horror movies from that golden Hollywood period? Absolutely. I love the, horror, the, the Hammer Horror movies. I think the, the, the Hammer Horrors are more the 50s. The, it's Got, the, yeah, universal yeah, the Universal Monsters of the 30s. Bela Lugosi and... For sure. Who played Frankenstein? Who was that guy? There's the, Boris Karloff. Karloff. I've there got go. the poster on my wall. I couldn't remember his name. But you're right about Lugosi there. And uh, Have you seen Ed Wood? I love Edward. That's the best Tim Burton movie for my money. Really? Hands down. I mean, we could have a big fight about the best Tim Burton. I do love Edward. It is up because there. Because for me, it's a tribute from one B-movie filmmaker to another. It's so pure in its affection. And in someone else's hands, it could have become... And it is funny, but it could have become a farce of that character in yeah. anyone else's hands. No, it paints him in a very uh, sympathetic light. It's An great, inspiring it? light, you know? He's got this kind of passion that he just... 
every project he's involved in, it's like the most, like he's making Citizen Kane, even if... Absolutely. You know what I mean? He doesn't give a fuck what anyone else thinks. As far as he's concerned, this is his masterpiece. Citizen Kane with monsters and boobies. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> also that all that 20s period of the German Expressionist film and all that stuff and Metropolis and Fritz Lang and um, I dig all that and I watch those a lot and so that's always and we were talking about it because we've just got installed a huge poster for the Bride of Frankenstein in our dining room nice. it's massive so we can look at it while we're having breakfast. and you can entertain dinner guests with a story as to why the haircut is the way it is absolutely do you think that's a good story do you I think, think I should it's put a great story my canon of stories I think it's a great story Maybe it should go near the, the top train, but yeah um so you mentioned your uncle is a professor mm-hmm. what did your parents do or do still do well, my dad, before he died, was uh, he did all kinds of stuff. He was a super clever man. I don't think he really found his niche. He, um, he was the managing director of various companies. You, you couldn't say that my dad had a, a life calling, really. I think all he wanted to do was ski and play bridge. And he, he got to do those things. I think his job was immaterial. But, you know, we had um, a good amount of money growing up, you know, so he, he made uh, good enough money. My mother, on the other hand... So my dad's family was all a long line of academics and professionals. His brother is a professor and all my Scottish cousins are doctors and lawyers and whatnot, real brainiacs. And my mother's side of the family are all artists. They're all musicians and artists. So my so mom... So you got a pretty good gene pool right there. Best of both worlds, right? I did have both. Yeah, at school I was very clever. And uh, so I had all my dad's academic bits and I got all the top grades and whatnot. But but I don't know because of, well, definitely my mother encouraged my musical leanings, and my dad did, but my mother more so. Um, I was also doing the music and the drawing, and those are more fun than the academic stuff. So it was always a battle between them, and uh, eventually the, the music and the drawing won out, the art won out, and I haven't done maths for ages. Here's the thing, though, and I don't know whether your experience at school would kind of correlate with this. For me, I was interested in music and cartoons specifically art at school yeah and because i liked punk music and cartoons i was discouraged by my music and art teachers they were basically telling me you're doing the wrong thing you should be doing picasso um you should be listening to Mm. beethoven do you know what i mean and i feel maybe it's changed now maybe my experience was unique to me but i felt like the creative subjects at school were the worst taught because they didn't actually encourage your creative side they just said no draw it like this play it like this does that make sense? What was I, your experience like? I think not so much on the music side. I didn't get discouraged or encouraged in the music side of things other than, you know, the yearly music uh, recital would be a chance to get a gig with my band, you know, do one song Nirvana cover and blow everyone's eardrums. But in terms of art, I think you've got a point there is that the curriculum at schools was very much do art in this way, which is the complete opposite of art. And they would say, this is how you draw a thing. And I'd be like, but... And I know they're, they're just trying to tick boxes and probably the art teachers are just as frustrated as you are. They all have to tick boxes and uh, get those Ofsted marks and keep the school open. Yep. And they guide you down a particular fairly narrow path. But along the way, perhaps they don't encourage you finding your own artistic voice. But what they do give you along the way is the valuable tools of technique which you can then use when you have your own free space after you leave school to develop your own artistic voice. So that was what I took from the courses and the A-levels and the GCSEs that I did in both art and graphic design, was that although there wasn't a lot of room for creation, I learned a lot of skills that I now use to create. So did you check out of full-time education after college? You didn't go to uni? No, I didn't go to university. Was that like a disappointment to your... 
academic father and uncle. It really and was. Yeah. It really was. But not in like a big way, not yeah, in a yeah. dramatic way, because he was a university man. My dad was a university man. And so was his uncle. They'd both been to Cambridge and had a fantastic time there. And my dad was very keen that I went to university. And so was I, because university seemed like a, a lot of fun. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. I think. I think for. A, for I'd a, encourage anyone to go just for the experience. Sure. But you, of course, had your own life experience in well, a traveling, touring band. That's and the if thing. you don't have that, and you don't have uni, and you go straight from school to college to a full-time job, and then that's you for life. You that really would be do real miss bummer. out on meeting a cast of characters and mm. traveling and learning and developing your brain. And well, it's funny you make that point because when I didn't go to university, my uncle, who for some reason looms large over this conversation, but he looms large over my life, he's a great guy, um, he wrote me a very sweet letter. He lives very a long way away from me. And it said, look, I know you decided not to go to university and if you want to take a year, whatever you do, that's great. But I would say, you know, please, for your own benefit, go to university. The people you'll meet, the things you'll learn, it's unrivaled in that. And I wrote him a letter back, which I never actually sent, that was like, Uncle Bruce, thanks very much. But here's the thing, I'm doing that in a tour van. You know, I'm, I'm meeting these people, these fantastic people, you know, I met Frank Turner as, you know, one of my buddies and all these... He was on the show this week. I was going to talk was to you he? about Frank in a bit. We'll get I'd that. love to talk about Frank and, uh, and Biffy and all these people that went on to be... And of course, the smaller bands that no one's heard of went on, on to be big influences in my life. And I learned my trade in that van in those shitty venues so i had the same experience i had the college experience just on on the road and then you know because all my buddies had gone to university that was handy because we used to go and stay in halls with them so i even got the horrible living <laughs> the horrible living arrangements out of that and as being well. in a band you obviously got the <coughs> tough financial experience as well budgeting it, although you didn't get free money thrown at you or did you did you no, early on in your career have that here's the thing is that by not going to university, I missed out on a huge debt Mm -hmm. that, you know, I never got that. I was never, uh, well, I was in debt to record labels, but it's a smaller amount and it was easy to pay off. So that is the difference that I learned everything I needed to know, but I didn't, I wasn't then hampered by this huge debt. Um, We didn't get money thrown at us. We managed to get a very small record label right at the end of when um, people were offering you know, living advances where record companies would pay not just for your album, but they'd give but you some rent. money to live off. Yeah, which is unheard of these days. But it's very rare for a, re- a label to even pay to make your record. The, the model, unless you get to a certain stature, is that you make the bastard and then they'll put it out and they, if you're lucky, they'll cover manufacture costs. Even sometimes an artist will have to cover the manufacture costs themselves and the label will do the legwork and the paperwork. And I'm not saying that's... Uh, meanness on the part of the label just as the state of the industry we managed to get not only our record paid for by extra mile but they gave us a living advance incredible really even by then even by 2004 that was unheard of that was a thing of the past that's early on in that label's history as well right so they were maybe taking a gamble on you and million dead perhaps well they were their eggs in and they were very um, ambitious and confident which was great but then they also they'd signed a deal themselves with sony who had a lot of money right so they could say, hey, give these bands this much money. And Sony said, fine. And then a couple of years later, Sony said, where's our money back? <laughs> and Extra Mile said, hang on ah. a second. And then uh, we left the label. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But it was great at the start. And it was great at the end. Were you two the first bands on there? Million Dead and Ruben? There's an argument about who was actually literally the first. The f- I think Million Dead single was the first single. And our album was the first album. Right. So yeah, it was neck and neck. So you've known Frank for forever. 
Well, it's uh, weird is that actually when Million Dead were going and when Ruben were going, we didn't actually play. I think we played one show with Million Dead. We didn't tour with them, okay. but they were always around. So we were always at the shows, and if other bands that we played with were playing, they'd all be there. I didn't meet Frank until uh, after their first album. Actually, then we became buddies, and he came on a, a couple of Ruben tours. Yeah. So he was on the show this week, and we were talking about growing old gracefully. Yeah. Um, particularly, I guess, in the music industry and rock and roll, but I think just in life. You yeah. And I wonder if you could share your take on the whole thing. Frank hates the word, but I, I kind of like the word, and I like the act a bit too much, and therein lies the problem, but yeah. p- partying. So you spend your 20s, your teen years, obviously, you know, drinking, having fun, cutting loose. Yeah. When you get to 30, I'm 31 now, I think Frank's 35, maybe, a bit older, I don't know. He's older than me, I know that, yeah. And he's, he had this conversation with me basically about how he's at a point in his life, which I'm kind of at as well at the moment, I'm not quite as far into it as him, where he's making changes and he's cutting back on you know certain vices, and he's basically trying to go straight and live a more healthy lifestyle, and Christ. I guess try and become a better person. Um, you're teetotal, right? Yeah. Have you always been that way? Uh, only uh, since uh, I met my wife and we decided that there was something that we didn't need. I'm not very fond of the effect that even a small amount of alcohol can have on a person or myself. I just like being in control, you know, and even some people, even before they're drunk, if they have just one beer, there's a little bit of change in them and you think, oh, that's not really you anymore. And you see the look in their eyes. No, I don't like that. And I don't like it when it happens to me. My wife doesn't like it when it happens to me. Not that I've ever... I've probably been drunk maybe four times in my life when I was a kid. Right. And even when so I... It's never get, really been something that you've been interested that's in, That's the really. thing. So it wasn't, it wasn't tough to give up. Yeah, it was never really part of my personality. And that's where Frank and I... Because <laughs> he obviously used to love it. I mean, Frank used to go absolutely crazy. <laughs> and, and never when I was there, because it was never that kind of party when I was there. Just keep the mug still if you wouldn't mind. It oh, I'm up, so though. sorry. I no keep worries, drawing dude. that funny pattern. That's, we just, I, they'll think we're practicing fucking Ouija magic Sorry, or man. Sorry, <laughs> man. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, Frank would go crazy, but never when I was there. i just hear the tales secondhand. Um, so, yeah, we have, we're bound to have very different views on that. I have, I have been where Frank is trying to get then it's forever. Forever. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager in that goth phase, obviously we used to go up to the heath and drink a bottle of vodka between us. But uh, like I say, only a couple of times did that really smash me out and it wasn't pleasurable. So yeah, I'm pretty straight edge. I'm pretty middle aged. You know, I go to, I'm a member of English Heritage, y'all. I go see castles on the weekend and I eat cheese and biscuits. That's my idea of a great weekend. That's you cutting loose. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, my, my idea of partying, this would happen when we would go on tour as well is that we would get back to people's houses because we never had any money to stay anywhere. So the line would always be before the last song, we've been Reuben, hope you've had a nice time, can we please stay at someone's house? One, two, three, four. Do, 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 do. And, uh, and then someone or a couple of people would come up after and say, oh, I really like the show, do you want to come back to our house and sleep? And we're like, great. Sometimes that led to like lasting friendships, people that I just met on that night, sometimes sleeping in a garage, weird. But... Usually when we get back to people's houses, they would think, oh, we've got a rock band in the house. And they would go, oh, well, we haven't got any coke or prostitutes. Sorry. And we'd be like, that's fine. <laughs> They'd assume we wanted to like party until the crazy early hours when we were exhausted. We'd given it all we had. So all we ever wanted was to sit down with a cup of tea, watch the telly. The whole band was always kind of like that, were they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're all home county boys, very shy. But we were tired as well. You yeah, know, yeah, none yeah. of us were really big drinkers, even the ones that do drink. That guy used to drink a bit. Uh, just as much as anyone else 
But that would be, and we, so we would end up just like flipping on MTV, talking to these new friends we've made, cups of tea, and that is my idea of like an ideal evening. When you say party to me, it means like four or five good friends or even new friends, telly on as a sort of a background noise talking point, cups of tea or maybe a takeaway pizza, chatting on, that is my absolute dream evening. If I could spend my last night on earth like that, I would, yeah. Love it. Yeah. So you were obviously around bands doing it, but it just, I guess, did it ever get in the way of friendships with other groups? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. There, were, there were some bands, and it was usually the smaller bands who were just getting into it, <clears throat> that really would take the rock and roll cliches to extremes. They would uh, have all the... I don't think groupies is the right word, but there was a lot of uh, friendly situations in hotel rooms and whatnot which never really appealed to any of us. And, and you could say taking advantage of people. I don't know. Everyone's got a choice in these things, unless alcohol's involved. Let's not get into that. But there, there's some distasteful aspects that I yeah, yeah. didn't really align myself with. But also, the, oh, isn't it funny? We trashed the hotel room. Now it's fucking not. Who do you think cleans that up? You know, they're less than you. You know, let's put the telly out of the bedroom. Don't bother. You know, it costs money. But they just thought, let's be in a band, and that's how being in a band is. And it doesn't really ring true. It hasn't rung true since the end of the 80s when record labels would give you, like, huge bags of coke or whatever. Since the excess ran out, then, as you say, when you try and forcibly create that situation, there's something kind of pathetic about it, isn't there? I think so. So I would uh, run into those bands, and I wouldn't ever say, stop acting like a dick. You wouldn't. No, no, but it, it stopped us being friends yeah, and yeah. they were on their own journey and I hope it works out for them, but it wasn't my trip. It's funny, I was at the Kerrang Awards one night, I used to work for the radio station there and there was a band, I won't mention them, but they got up to an accepting awards and they said, ah, oh, see that girl at the back, yeah, the blonde one, she's going to be sucking my dick later. Holy and moly. bearing in mind, people in the room are like Rob Zombie, yeah. Alice Cooper, Corn. Yeah people who in their day have probably raised infinite amounts of hell yeah but they were all and the whole room just kind of went and it was fucking horrible yeah and it was so just out of taste and like but it's not so long ago that you could still say stuff like that and it's great that that within a few i think the last 10 years has been huge for that kind of thing that people go no hold on man and even if you watch telly if you watch repeat telly from the end of the 90s or the start of the noughties movies as well movies as well you will pick up on stuff and you go who like i watched bill and ted with one of my favorite movies uh, i loved it i was like oh, i love bill and ted and then there's a bit where they have a cuddle and they call each other fags right and you'd think oh i forgot that bit unbelievable and it's so sad to see your favorite people using those words and offending those uh cultures and cripes and you still have to go but i still love bill and ted <laughs> oh dear it's tough though isn't it because i do think that everything is a product of its environment and its time and its place and oh, the sure. culture that was residing then now i'm not saying that because that word was widely spread that it was okay to use it but what i do mean was is perhaps the word itself hadn't been dissected in the same way that it is today as the extremely negative disrespectful word that it is or would you say that it's always been disrespectful and it was just accepted that it was okay to use it then yeah it was it was accepted that it was uh, okay to be disrespectful to um gay folks then by calling them fags and if anyone displayed emotion or a dude hugged another dude they were homos or whatever it's not not cool but i don't think uh, i think we should accept with that kind of thing and uh 
all this other stuff. I'm not sure it should be censored for today's audiences. I think we should all be grown up enough to realize, okay, that's how they did things then. It ain't cool. We don't do it like that anymore. But I don't think, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't trim that scene out of Bill and Ted's Adventure for, you know, modern audiences. I think people should be grown up enough to go, that was 30 years ago and we've moved on. You know, it's still shocking to see because Bill and Ted still feels relevant to me because I still watch it. But um, it's a PG movie. It's a PG like movie. A family. Outrageous. <laughs> I think, when, I mean, when I see that and I go, oof, but then I think, do you know what, actually, I'm really pleased that that is unacceptable and that we've got to a place where, you know, you can't say, she's going to be sucking my dick after the awards, that even like Rom Zombie goes, not cool, man. And yeah. you're like, great, because yeah, yeah. it isn't cool. Uh, so I, I'm just happy that we've made that progress. But I wouldn't censor it. I think you've got to keep it whole and just understand that it's from a different uh, viewpoint and leave it where it is. Well, if you 80s. cut it out as well, then you can't learn how far we've come. Because you need to know how far we've come to reinforce that the way we're going is good. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Who were the bands for you growing up? Were you into rock from kind of the get-go? And I guess who were the initial bands that inspired you to start writing, want to be in a band? It was quite, it was quite late. It, the, really, the ones that inspired me to start writing was Queen because my, all I'd heard music-wise was my parents' tapes of uh, The Searchers, 60s acts, you know, 60s compilations. Beatles, obviously. Needles and pins, right? Needles and pins are so great. But and that's kind of early punk because Ramones covered it or maybe oh, really? the Zillows did, one of those bands. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, you can hear they've got that element to them. And who the other one? The Kinks were great. Uh, so I grew up with the Beatles, but they didn't really inspire me. I, I just thought, oh, that's nice. And I knew it as a, as a bedrock to what it was going on. It was when um, Bohemian Rhapsody got re-released off the end of uh, Wayne's World. Because it was so expansive and bombastic. It's huge. And... Not nothing you've ever heard before. If you're a kid, you haven't really been paying attention. But I sort of made friends with a kid at school at the time. I didn't have a lot of friends, but this guy, Chris Hawes, who was in my first ever band with me, Sheer Power, which was me on vocals and him on guitar. That's a great name. It's a great name, right? If you're fucking nine years old and you want to form a band, Sheer Power. You're not fucking around with a name like that. Exactly. We did two songs. We did Bohemian Rhapsody and we did Ugly Kid Joe's Everything About You and they were awesome. Wit's a good friend of mine. I love that guy. Whitfield Crane, the singer. In oh, right. Kid. Really? Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? Well, yeah. he's got a lot to answer he's for. He's got some great stories, man. <laughs> I some bet, great man. stories. That's a great track. We used to love that. But he, this he guy, hates Chris that Hors, track. Does he? Yeah, because he takes himself seriously as a lyricist and as a frontman. And obviously that's kind of a novelty song and that's all that he's known for. And I think it kind of grates him that that's the kind of some part of his, you know, creative output. Dude, but here's the thing, man, because everyone has got, like Alec Guinness used to uh, get super cross about people only knowing him from Star Wars and whatnot. And I was uh, reading a story about, you know, John Pert, where you played Doctor Who and, and Wurzel Gummidge? Yeah, of course. They put a big plaque up to him, a blue plaque that said, John Pertwee lived here, he was Doctor Who. And if you asked John Pertwee, if he was still around, he'd be cross because like, he didn't rate Doctor Who as highly as Wurzel Gummidge. Wurzel Gummidge was his favourite thing. He'd prefer that blue plaque said Wurzel Gummidge. But you can't be cross, and I've learnt this with my career as well, about what people remember you for. You've just got to be happy they remember you at all. You can't pick what, is, what you do that is going to resonate with people but if it resonates in the first place, that's your job done. Yeah. So if people will come up to me and keep singing Freddy Krueger or Scare the Police or whatever, which I would probably pick as fairly lightweight parts of my musical canon, if you want to call it that. It's still good songs, but I've done better stuff. I used to get a bit cross at people going, play Freddy Krueger. But like, dude, if that's what you want, if that's what struck a chord with you, then you have to own that. And I'm happy about that. And it's obviously brought people a lot of joy. Yeah. And if you're putting out good into the world, I guess that can only be 
a positive thing. So your mate Whit needs to lighten up. He does. Well, he, I, I say hate is probably too much of a stronger word. He just wishes that there were more songs that people acknowledged and went, actually, that's a tune as well. Sure, I, I can understand Because they're that. not a one-hit wonder, you know? But yeah. if you're going to have a one-hit wonder, that's if a pretty big one. It, it was a big staple of our live circuit, which included <laughs> Me one too. That video, man, that black and white video of them on the beach is iconic. I don't think I ever saw the video. You never saw the video. Oh, You've got to, to watch it, it after this chat's done. Okay. First thing you do. Yeah. So, do Bohemian Rhapsody. I love that. I love that. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody and Everything About You. They're the two. They're, well, that was, it was mostly of. Queen. I got the greatest hits uh, on tape and then I was like, I want to learn guitar and I want to be, I wanted, I've said this in a few interviews, I wanted to be a, a mixture of Freddie Mercury and Brian May. So I wanted to sing as good as him and play as good as him. And I've fallen... Set the bar nice and low then, yeah? Right. I've fallen pretty <laughs> short. But here's, that's another one of my sort of life philosophies is I tend to do this in most things I do. I aim ridiculously high with that hybrid there. And then, but the great thing about that is, is if you aim ridiculously high and you fall short, you're still in a pretty good place, right? To say that you're not as good as Brian May and Freddie Mercury is no shame. No. So uh, I think I've done well in that regard. You know, I'm a, I'm a much lower rung on the same ladder. Did things happen fairly soon for Ruben? Did no. things kind of take off no, it took- fairly soon? Or was it a long, hard slug to try and get to that point where you had label interest? And- took so long. Took so long. When we were kids, we rehearsed for a whole year before we even got our first gig. Because, cheaply, because we didn't know how to, about, uh, to go about getting a gig. So then when we got our first gigs, we were pretty proficient. And people, you know, the reaction was, you know, wow, because we sounded like a seasoned band. It was only our second or third show. Excuse me. What's your advice for people out there listening to this that want to find out how to get gigs in this day? What would you say is the best way to go about getting on stage <clears> and performing? Oh, I mean, back in the day, it was to take tapes to people that ran the music nights. And that's probably still the best way. It's good if you can make chums with an older band. This is how we got our first proper gig, because we did like a hideous village fate with an older band called Rascal, who were, they were great. And they said, which, you know... I don't know how rare it is, and I hope it's not quite so rare because I do it to other bands. But they said, hey, guys, we really like you. We got a gig at the local venue, the Tumbledown Dick in Farnborough, which is a horrible little pub, but it was, uh, you know, amazing shrine to us. We longed to play there. And they're like, do you want to come support us at our Tumbledown gig? We were like, yeah. We <clears throat> made it. And so they just took this band that they just met, which is so super awesome. And I've never forgot that. And I'm still booking bands that someone put on a bill with me or I see out and I go, hey, do you want to come play my gig? Because that's how it gets started. So maybe more than um, giving tapes to promoters, which you probably still can do, is uh, make friends with another band somehow. And if you're good enough, they'll bring you to their show. That's how we got gigs. But then it rumbled on for a long time. We became big in the local area. Uh, but getting label interest is very difficult. Long slog. And it was a long time, even after we recorded our first album, that it came out. It was a big gestation period between starting the band and that first record coming out. We felt like we'd been around for years and years. And we had, yeah. So you kind of came fully formed, though, in that sense, from a musical standpoint, is you had the skill set mm. to come out and do what needed to be done once the opportunity was there. Yeah, I think we had an advantage in that, you know, lots of bands sort of evolve on the stage in front of people. And we evolved sort of in secret. So then when we came out, it was pretty good. You're killing. Was it a good time in music for you? Is your memory of the kind of state of this country's music scene healthy? Well, back then. Yeah, diverse, exciting, or was it kind of dry? Well, it was funny. I don't think uh, rock was really doing much in this country at that point in the in the late '90s until uh, the Offspring had um, 
Pretty Fly for a White Guy was number one, and then Limp Biscuit. It's all American pop punk and new metal, wasn't it? It was, but even you know, I couldn't even say what was happening with the British groups. Our scene was great, but on the on the larger stage, you know, rock was ostracised. And in my school, like I said, it was difficult to be a rock kid. I was like one of only three, and it was you know, and wow. I was the most outrageous of all of them. So it all seemed to centre on me, and you'd have to run out of the town centre at night if anyone saw you were a rocker. So it's difficult. But then when we started gigging on the local scene. That was great. And at local venues like the West End Centre and the Tumbledown Dick, there was a big... For some reason, around Farnborough, there seemed to be... There's a lot of metal. Like, And still today, if you go to Farnborough, a lot of dudes with like long hair and long beards wearing Sepultura t-shirts. And you're like, dude, they don't even sell those anymore. Where have you got that from? <laughs> He's the, been wearing it since the 90s. It, yeah. I think so, yeah. It's sort of grey and crusty. That's a great thing about metal, isn't it, though, is that I think if you fall in love with it, even if you're not wearing fucking Slayer T-shirts and you've still got long, dirty hair, I do think if you get into that kind of music at a young age, you're sort of in it for life, generally. I think so. Somewhere in there in your heart, there's always a special place. But it's funny about the goths as well. You sort of stay goth. Goth for life. I'm not Goth sure life. that's entirely healthy. They sort of, a lot of these people tend to sort of stay in a teenage zone. Well, you stay in that mindset as well, don't you? So you don't so. allow yourself to evolve and mature. Yeah. And it's good to like take in new, You've got different to. art, sounds, Yeah, if people. you're still listening to like Just Vulgar Display of Power, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. That's a good record Just now. smashing beer cans on your head around in a parking Absolutely. lot, still there. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's talk about the transition. I don't want to go too much into Ruben because I imagine you talk about it all the time and I want to concentrate more on the here and the now. Sure. But after that band breaks up, what happens to you in your personal life? Where do you go? Uh, in terms of perhaps trying to look for answers uh, to find a creative outlet? Mm. And do you um, struggle with that transition? Is it a difficult one to make? Because obviously I imagine at that point that band sort of defined who you were. Yeah, it did, yeah. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. It was really, really very difficult for me. Um, The end of the band, it's weird. It was sort of, 
the last year or so of the band was very, very difficult for me emotionally, and I had like almost a nervous breakdown, which is why it sort of finished. Then there was this funny sort of oasis here in the middle where I just had a, a fantastic time. I felt great. I didn't miss the music at all. My dad had just died, but I, I still felt pretty good. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, the pressure of the, of the band was off me. Um, and I just spent all my free time with my wife and I connected, reconnected with a lot of my friends that I'd missed out. I'd missed out on a lot of stuff, you know, when they were going off on gap years or in uni together, I was touring. So I didn't see them for a lot of that formative period. Reconnected with those guys. I felt fantastic for about a year. And it was only then, funnily enough, when I started making music again, that I went down. I had a big crash, almost like a delayed reaction. And maybe if you think I spent 10, 15 years in that band, I know only eight of them publicly, but as, as we've said, it was a lot of just a big gestation period. Maybe it was a delayed reaction because I had a very tough period before it broke up. Then when we finished, I felt good for that year. And then when I started making music again, rehearsing for my solo album, I had a huge crash and a very low period. And I felt awful. So it was weird. I think it must have been some kind of delayed reaction, yeah. And I didn't create any art in that year off either. It was only, I just had my nine to five job up in town. I what started, was that doing? Uh, I worked for a design agency. I still do it um, a couple of days a week in town and then I work from home the rest of the time. Um, but at that point, I was going in five days a week to a, a job in King's Cross for a design agency. You know, so illustrating? Illustrating, animating. It was great stuff. And so maybe because I was doing that so often. That's a pretty good job to fall into as your plan B, as it were. You know, oh, you're not stacking shelves in it's Tesco's. It's fantastic. Right? Yeah. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with stacking shelves in Tesco's. No. The funny but I thing think is if that. If you're creative and you're used to having an outlet to then yeah. not have one, like at least you still had something to express yourself, is what I mean. But crucially, in that design job, I don't really get to design, to, to express myself. I express what the clients want and I'm doing okay, things for other people. Okay, you're working to briefs, yeah. Working to briefs and you put a personality in it, but it's for someone else. And, so and I Is think, that even maybe more frustrating? Well, it didn't feel frustrating <laughs> okay. because when I got home at seven o'clock or whatever it is from London, I would just be exhausted. So I just watched telly and went to sleep. I didn't create any of my own art. Whereas when I was working at the chip shop or something, a, a job that is vaguely mindless, you know, that was creative all the time. And in between customers coming in, I would draw cartoons on pieces of paper. I wrote an entire song in my head in a shift once and it played it on the guitar as soon as I got home, note for note, just because it was, as a thought experiment. So those kind of menial jobs, if you are stacking shelves in Waitrose, I think you might end up creating a lot more than you did when you actually had a design job. Here's the reason why. Yeah. I was speaking to, who was the guest? It was a couple of weeks back. It was Kelly Jones from Stereophonics. Yeah. And he was saying those moments when we're bored and our mind wonders, yeah. that's when the good stuff happens. Of course. That's when you start creating ideas and just running off into your imagination and letting things play out. And the problem with these, and you pointed out your phone to me earlier, which yeah. is a nice back to basics, old school, uh -huh. non-smartphone, is because when people are on their smartphones all the time looking at stuff, mm. they're never bored, so they never have those flights of fancy where they can go off into their own world. That's a good point, man. He create. seems like a, the Kelly Jones you said. You're dropping some serious oh, sorry, names. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all right, man. He <laughs> was, uh, I got, we got a mutual friend, and he was uh, telling me how cool this guy is because I was never really interested in stereophonics and whatnot. Apparently, he's uh, sound as a pound. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. Yeah. Really nice guy. So back to where you are. You're in the fish shop. You write a song on your break. Yeah. You're basically finding your passion coming back to you. Yeah. Well, that was... Uh, no, that was while I was in the band. And then... Oh, okay, right. And then, but during the end of this sort of... I had a gap here for myself, I suppose you could call it. And then the songs sort of started coming back. And uh, I was getting frustrated because... 
unless you finish a song, you have to sort of exercise it by finishing it. You can't have, you know that story of ghosts, I never made it to my lover's house. Will you take this uh, pr- treasure under the floorboards to my lover and then my ghost will disappear? It's a bit like that with songs. If you've only got a you've verse and a chorus, exercise them, right? you have, you've yeah. got to finish them off. And so I said to my uh, now drummer, Dan Cav, who was just my buddy, I was like, oh man, all these songs, they won't go away. And he said, well, let's just jam them out and we can finish them and stop bothering you. And so we did, we started jamming with Dan Cav and then I started creating again and I started, um, I took my days down at work so I could spend more time creating. But uh, ironically, this is when I had a, another a confidence crash and a really a low period for several years. It's crazy, man. Do you know where that comes from? Is it in your family? Is it genetic? No, I don't no. think so. Uh, I don't, I think, I think really if I think about it now, I was, I was having trouble reconciling my new life, which was that I wasn't on tour all the time. Like you said, I identified with that band that it was my life and I didn't have uh, my dad anymore. Not that he was, you know, obviously he was a big figure in my life. I wouldn't say he was my uh, reigning, he wasn't like my mentor that taught me everything. I didn't lose everything when my dad died, but it was a big divide. And when your parents die is when you become an adult, or at least one of those milestones. Obviously, when you have a kid, that's another big milestone. But that was, it was just a big milestone. My life at that point was so different to how it had been just a year previously. I didn't really recognize myself. And also, because it's, this is going to sound stupid, but I grew the mustache. As soon as I stopped being in magazines and whatnot from the band, I knew, ah, oh, shit, I got some time to cultivate this mustache because it was wispy and horrible for about like a year. Like man. I wish no, I yours could, is good. I wish I could grow a straw. Uh, the handlebar would be my chosen. You've got to stick at it, man. And this I'm, is horrible I'm for trying. the whole year. But it <laughs> meant that when I looked in the mirror, I didn't even look like the old me. And uh, I'd started wearing these suits just looked like a different person. I felt like a different person. I was very confused and, and not a lot of my life was the same as how it was. And so I think the uh, low period stemmed from being confused about who I was and how it fit because, yeah, being in that band, I'd done that for as long as I could remember. Was there one moment that comes to mind when you regained that confidence and you went, I'm looking in the mirror, I recognize myself again now, or the new version of me? Was there one moment or was it more just a gradual, slow, organic... No, as cheesy as it sounds, there was one very specific moment. And it I think was... there usually is with things like this. I think there is those oh, yeah? moments of clarity, if you want to call it A that. revelation. Yeah. It would, um, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm plugging a record, but it's the previous record, so it's fine. But the song, I Ain't Your Boy, on An amazing song. Oh, thanks, I'm a Big man. fan of that song. That is all about, that is all about how I felt at the time. It was the absolute, blah, just everything I wanted to say about how I felt, about how... I felt like I was a completely different person and how that related to my wife because I felt so guilty that she'd married this different person, the stripy shirt, fluffy hair, rock and roller. And now I was this sort of somber, mustachioed weirdo in a suit that didn't smile. And I felt like I'd robbed her of the person that she fell in love with. So that all in that song. And I played that song to her and said, look, this is how I feel. And she told me that she loved the new person even more than the old guy that I was worried that I'd robbed her of. And at that point, that really clicked. And I was like, ah, and just for her to say that was so important. And it just, everything just disappeared. And I wish I'd talked to her about it earlier. But um, with her verdict on that song, it just all made it okay. It's so crazy. And I was so lucky to have someone like her to help me through it. And she stood with me all through the low periods, not really knowing what was happening and I didn't know what was happening really until I wrote this song and I sang that song last night with my drummer Daniel 
And it's still really hard to sing. And it, it sounds a bit mopey and self-pitying to um, sympathise with how bad you felt at the time. But to have a clear record of how bad you felt, it's like reading your old diary. You connect right back with it. When I sing that song, I feel just as sad as I was then, which is really tough. Um, so, yeah, it was that song and that moment uh, from my wife that, that clicked me right back. And almost immediately, I felt so much better about myself. And I stopped hating myself. And, uh, and things have been great since then. Amazing, eh? Everyone needs that person in their life, I think. I think that's where so much strength comes from, right? Yeah, is I would say a so. partner. Yeah. Um, and the ability of them to be able to see you and pick you up and lift you up and build you up and mm. big you up. I hope I... It's a rare thing to find, right? You have to look and very hard. You've got to treasure it if you get it. I mean, it doesn't always have to be, you know, a, <clears throat> a lover or a, a life partner in that, but you do need other people to look outside you and and say, it seems to me like this is going on. You need someone who cares about you and knows a lot about you to help you with this stuff. Yeah, I think that makes it a lot easier. Uh, that album for me, Muscle Memory, is an extreme double album. It's pretty extreme. It's pretty extreme, right? Yeah. So were you exercising after you write, I ain't your boy? You're like, okay, I'm onto something here. Was there ever any one direction you felt like you could have gone or did you want to just throw everything at the wall and attack it from all angles because you had so much going on? Well, <clears throat> uh, as I said in a couple of interviews, which I say not because I'm like, you really should have done your research. What I mean is I don't want to give you secondhand stuff here. Right, right. Is that um, I was trying really hard to create a very narrow theme for both records because people had said about previous records, you know, in Nothing We Trust, the last Ruben album, people would say, oh, it's a great album, but it just does too many things and I want a, a narrower listen. And even though my favourite albums, like the White Album or whatever, they go in so many different directions, they're very huge or the fragile, <clears throat> it's a vast banquet. I could see the appeal of like a half hour of power, you know, 10 songs, all very similar, bash you know people like my friends baddies had just i said why don't you put an acoustic track on that album they said yeah we could and we got some but we want it to be like bosh half an hour that's it all the songs are similar vibe and i could see the wisdom in that and there's some albums that are like that and i dig and so i thought well i want to do that <clears throat> but i knew that i'd always have the heavy bits and the melodic bits so i thought aha if i do if i put all the heavy bits on one disc and all the melodic bits on another disc then I can have my cake and eat it. I can have this varied album, but by separating it in those, into those two channels, each one will be that sort of uniform, narrow vision. Completely failed. Because what happened is... Because they're two extremes, right? Right. Well, not only are they extreme from each other, but even on those discs, the range of music and styles is so disparate that it's not a very cohesive listen. So, to a certain extent on the metal one, but on the soft one, that is just all over the place with the jazz and the folk and the blues and the pop. It's a disaster. And There's the some great on... songs on there, though. Oh, I much prefer that one. Sure. Um, and I think it's a really interesting album, but I guess in today's world of, you know, people need sometimes, I think, to be spoon-fed a certain digestible product, Maybe, they? unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I thought this was going to be that. I thought, here's my crossover record. Right, right, right. But it was not to be. So I think it failed in that regard. Uh, to to be two very streamlined discs, um, but it's still an, an interesting record and an exciting experiment. Yeah. Did you find yourself grow massively as a songwriter because you're learning to focus in on certain approaches 
and apply them in a very conscious way? Did you find yourself yeah. kind of I had to developing your craft in that, in that way? Yeah, I had to sort of hone songs in a way that I hadn't really done before. Just whatever came out was what went on the record. Whereas this time, I'd laid down certain, um, not barriers, rules and regulations that I wanted to follow in order to fit things into a different dynamic. So yeah, I would think, oh, that's a bit too aggressive. Let's swap that out for something softer. Whereas before, the aggressive bit would have stayed. So yeah, that was the first time I really focused on songwriting and, and thought about it very deeply. Yeah, I'd always thought about like structure and whatnot. Of course. But generally, whatever came out was what stayed. Whereas this time, I was like, no, I need a thing that does this. And I'd wait until I found More it. selective, perhaps more disciplined. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or just that I would sit down and go, write this specific thing because we need to get from A to C. Whereas before... I would just go, how about Z in the middle? I'm like, no, man, it's got to be B. <laughs> how did the long-term diehard Ruben fans react to the softer album? Did you find people connecting with it? Because it was something perhaps new from you yeah, for them? I was, uh, I was sort of looking forward to everyone throwing up their arms in horror and going, this isn't what we want. And not that I wanted to fuck with people at all. Um, I would just expected and... Again, I've said before that I, I underestimated them and I feel bad about that because I sort of thought people would go, what's this craziness? We don't want to listen to this. But all of them were like, this is all great. And I was like, oh, okay. I thought maybe I would be a bit clever and wrong foot some of them, but that was uh, patronizing of me and I regret it. <clears throat> so they all dug it all. In fact, that must have felt good, right? Yeah, it felt fantastic. It was, it was really brilliant. And I think people even came to those first shows not expecting to hear any Ruben songs. Those shows sold out uh, on the basis that people thought they were going to get all new material, which is so supportive. And then obviously everyone was happy when I cracked out a couple of the old classics, which I would never do a set without a couple of the old classics. Any artist is a fool to disregard their back catalogue, especially when the support that you have is built upon it. But I think they were expecting, let's pay 10 or 12 pounds or whatever it is and listen to an hour of new music from... Jamie, which is... And they were behind it wholeheartedly. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, it's brilliant. Let's so, yeah. talk about Devolver, man. Um, I've listened to it twice. I can't recall any specific track names at this <laughs> stage, so <laughs> please okay. don't judge me badly for that. You can go with the one that goes... Bum, ba, dum, ba, but, uh, whatever. <laughs> I, I guess whatever disparity was on that Muscle Memory album is completely gone with this. And in this album is real concise work um, from an emotional standpoint and also from a sonic standpoint and there's a lot of new flavors in there as well i love the electronic kind of synthy almost industrial undertones oh, you're, you're um, talking my language and i just think that it's a really fucking kick-ass like solid album as in like the way albums should be from start to end yeah a record a whole that's um, exactly you what must I be very proud thank you well to hear you say that and we've had a couple of reviews that said Similar things, you know, words like cohesive and solid keep coming to the fore. That's exactly what I wanted to do. So I'm relieved to hear you say that. And I am chuffed, yeah, that we managed to pull it off. And again, you know, I, I worked hard. When you hard say we, it. is it you and then Dan, your drummer, is it just the two of you or who are we talking? Well, Daniel played the drums on the record, yeah. But when I, when I say we, really, I mean, Daniel isn't involved in the writing process. He just does exactly what I tell him <laughs> even if it's impossible yeah. he'll do it you know he's fantastic you need guys like that though right oh man he's saved my life in so many ways uh, no when I say we I sort of I mean you're talking about you in space I'm talking about me in space but then also to a lesser extent the management as well uh, Matt upstairs and Simon 
because I came to them before I... Oh, no, I, I'd done a couple of tracks with Space. I came to them before we went to Big Scary Monsters uh, and said, look, I, need to, I want to create this type of album. This is where I'm headed with Space. What do you think? I played them all the demos, and they helped me decide what should go on it, which I'd never done before. And they understood what I was trying to create with it. You know, was something that difficult solid. for you to open up that door and let other people in and pick apart your work? I wouldn't say difficult. It was a little ticklish. It was new. It was new. I had to... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, okay, sometimes it was difficult, yeah. <laughs> and we had... Uh, they picked out songs that I was like, you're crazy, but all right. And I picked out songs they were like, that's never going to work, and then it worked. And then so, you find a middle ground, and that's when you arrive at... yeah. So mostly space, but the management, to a lesser extent, uh, have all worked with me on trying to create this um, a more cohesive uh, output. And I think it's come through. Yeah, and space, he has that sound that, that sort of, he slathers all over it, or moulds it together. Songs, you know, some of the songs are still a little bit pointy, outy and jaggedy, but because the sound that we had for all of them unifies it, I think, uh, it still comes out as one complete uh, piece, I hope. What was the electronical sort of influence was there a band or was there a specific sound you were aiming for because correct me if i'm wrong but there isn't that much of that in your previous work no well we always tried in ruben because ruben were big fans of soul wax and nine inch nails all of us love those records and they've all their records have got a high electronic uh facet to them it was just difficult. We didn't want to add like a dude on samples to the band. And so whenever we tried to put stuff like that on the records, like there was a drum and bass break on Blame Thrower, but you can't really hear it. And That just got name checked by Shikari, didn't it? Did you hear? Did it? On their new album, The oh, Spark. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean, watch out because Blame Thrower, we stole that from Mystery Men, the Ben Stiller movie. Okay. So maybe they just well, maybe the they're just movie. quoting Ben. <laughs> it's a good name. But then also on, on Suffocation of the Soul, there's a lot of like, samples and electronic beats, but they were never really high up in the mix because we weren't confident enough. And so I've always wanted to get that in there. And Space does a lot of a lot more sort of electronic stuff. You know, he's worked with The Prodigy and people like that. So that's his sort of Big arena. names. Big names, yeah. He had a couple of tracks on their last record, and I think he's working with them. He's been working with them for a long time. So he knows uh, lots more about computers and samples and synthesizers than I do. So it was just... You know, I left that behind on muscle memory. That's a lot rawer. But this time, I wanted to turn that up, and the Nine Inch Nails influence is more apparent. But also, something that I didn't have before in Ruben was an appreciation for 80s synth pop, which is the since- best shit, dude. Do you like? Do you know Dan Sartain? No. So he's like a solo guy. His background is sort of rockabilly, garage rock, two-minute songs. He's got a song called Fuck Friday. Yeah. It's like Fuck Friday, Fuck Saturday, Fuck Sunday, Fuck You, stuff like that. His latest record, it's about a year old now, but he went down that same sort of dark synth pop yeah. angle. And it it's great. fucking, I love that tone and that sound and that style so Dan much. Dan what now? Dan Sartain. Dan Sartain. You dig him. You dig his style as well. I remember that, man. He will, maybe he's digging the same furrow as I am. In, in the past couple of years, I've really got... I've always been into Cindy Lauper, but I've really got into her first couple of records in the past couple of years, and then Madonna's early records. They just sound so brilliant. And Phil Collins, uh, early solo Phil Collins, particularly uh, No Jacket Required. It's just the sound is incredible, and those fizzy synths, and I wanted to put more of them in the... 
I mean, there's this sort of a, a, a between Nine Inch Nails, you know, a, a certainly Pretty Hate Machine. That's pretty 80s. It sounds a lot like sort of Erasure Records at the start yeah, yeah. there before it gets darker and darker. So there is a crossover point with, you know, 80s pop. And I'm sure Trent would tell you all about his love. You interviewed Trent? Never. You'll never, get there. Never. You'll get yeah, there, yeah, yeah. Ask him about <laughs> 80s pop and he'll go on for hours. So I think, I think there is a crossover there. So I wanted to have a bit of that element in there. So, yeah, it goes from Nine Inch Nails to Phil Collins. That's where those synths and electronic bits came in. Yeah. Fucking A. <laughs> well, the album's out the 27th of October. Yeah. Um, you've also got Lem Mania happening, which, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, Fizzy Blood is a song of yours. Yeah. And they're also a great band. And I didn't join those dots until I saw that poster mm. and went, have they taken that from your song? Do you know they have? Have they told you they have? I think they've said that they have. I've met their manager a couple of times and he said that the lads were uh, big fans and that's cool as fuck it's coming full circle yeah man and just but it's time to put me in my grave right when that sort of thing <laughs> starts happening you think oh man they've taken what they need for you time to go away I, i'm sure they wouldn't say that i think there's a few bands there's the band called parties break hearts as well and there's a band called uh for astronauts and satellites i think there's a few bands that have been named after my songs so that's pretty cool but fizzy bloods uh you know i dig them and there are, is it your first ever kind of like ATP style yeah. curated event? Yeah, I've been trying to get one off the ground for quite a long time and we thought this was a good idea, a nice tempo to uh, do at the same time as the record. I think it's a couple of weeks after the record comes out. So it's like early November, time. right? Yeah. 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 And uh, you've got Boston Music Rooms as the venue. Is it sold out? So can people still buy tickets or not? There's a few tickets a left. Few left. I was having that chat with the management just upstairs. Yeah, there's a few tickets left. You got employed to serve... All these bands, Palm Reader. Palm Reader. It's a great fucking lineup, man. It's really huge. Good. And the, the lesser known bands like the St. Pierre Snake Invasion and Broker from Brighton. Um, I wanted to get, you know, a, a mix of established bands, but also, you know, up and coming acts that are lesser known on there uh, to give it a real mix. I mean, it's a, it's a huge lineup. I mean, I'd want to go and see it, which is the, the whole point. And that's the bummer is that I probably won't be able to watch all the bands because <clears throat> you know no press that day <clears throat> exactly yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, <laughs> how am I going to spend my whole day who knows but it's going to be wild so you're feeling good you're I feeling feel positive you're feeling charged I mean there's a lot of work ahead of me but yeah, yeah I think I'm ready for it man do you hope is there any sort of there's probably not pressure from anyone else or maybe there is but is there a certain element of pressure on yourself at this stage to because you must feel like that you deserve more than you've perhaps been given by, in, by, in terms of by the, the music industry and perhaps recognition success or not. No, I don't Is think that not so. what it's about for you? I think, I think people like to, people sort of say, oh, you, sh- you should be bigger than you are or you should have been further along or playing bigger venues or whatnot. It doesn't really make any sense because if I did deserve greater success, then I would have it, you know. I think um, my Would band- you like it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If you look at someone like Frank, who has is a runaway success, not runaway though, you know, he worked really hard. It, I think most people know that it didn't really come out of nowhere, but he he's hardly ever home. You know, he works so hard. I'm not sure I'm built for that. Frank is. He's a machine. And even now you're saying, shit, 35 may be slowing down on some of that. That's just the lifestyle that he wants. See, I'm not sure that I do. Uh, I'm happy with... Well, I'm not happy i'm happy with where i am but i would like to reach a broader audience and that's what this record is about trying to um just reach more people that and that's always been the case and even when even if i got to someone like where frank was i would still want to reach more people and i think he feels the same you always want to broaden your audience and reach new people so i can't really 
complain. Nice. Well, I hope that this is the album that really does fucking put you out there in front of some new ears. Thanks. You've me obviously too. got your diehard longtime fan base that are going to go with you wherever you go. Yeah. But I feel like if there is an album, this is the one. Um, congratulations on thanks, a great man. record. And thank you for a really good chat. I hope you enjoyed it. And You're very welcome. I did. Yeah. Thanks for uh, stimulating me. And um, thanks for sharing some cool stories as well, particularly the haircut of the Bride of Frankenstein. The yeah. Top draw. Check Jamie, thank you, dude. Put it there. Thanks, buddy. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.